0: Welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host, and uh, I really look forward to to talking to you this week. Um, you know, b- before I get into the the, the subject matter, I, I once again, as always, I have to do what previous shows have done, and 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 the shows that come after me will do. Remind you that we are listener supported radio, uh, and we rely almost entirely on the donations that you, the listener makes to these to these fine stations and so if you're listening in in new york city on wbai i ask that you either you know reach out go online and uh and make a donation follow the prompts to make a donation you can go to give to org or just call in call into 212 209 2950 and make a donation look you know i i try to present this show as um as content that uh is worth listening to that is going to be content you're not going to hear anywhere else. And for that, I'm hoping that you'll support the station for giving me this platform. And that goes for WPFW in Washington, D.C. So if you're listening in Washington, I hope that you will go to their website, which is WPFWFM.org slash donate and follow the prompts to donate to the, this fine station in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, or you can go to their phone number and, and call 202 588 9739 And again, make a donation of, of any size, anything that you can do. I mean, I, I know we're, you know, all kinds of talk about the economy and and you know, post-COVID and all that other stuff. But I know that most people have recovered uh, to some extent. And during that period of time, things have shifted. We've seen the shift in, in where you get your news and where you get your information, where you get your content from, how you entertain yourself. So you may not be listening to this show on the radio. You may be listening to it um, or watching me on Facebook live stream. You may be catching this as a podcast. But regardless of how you see the show or how you hear the show, I hope that you'll support this uh, WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Look, I could not be in a better market for the message that I'm delivering. Only if, if for no other reason, because. The powers of New York State are in New York City. The powers of the federal government are in Washington, D.C. Now, as far as the general public, look, I'm not saying that the people uh, of New York or the people of Washington, D.C. matter more than anybody else. In fact, that's why this program can be listened to anywhere. But I'm hoping if you are listening in those cities, not only will you support these stations, but you will, again, continue to speak truth to power. That's what uh, that's what we need to do. So uh, again, I I can't emphasize enough how important it is that you support the radio stations that give me again the foundational platform. These radio stations um, that allow me to create this show for both for podcasts, for Facebook, for YouTube, wherever I you know post the show later on. So um, again, I want to thank these stations for giving me the uh, the opportunity, giving me the airtime. And but you know. I, my thanks means means nothing to the operation of the station it's your thanks that means everything so if you're thankful for this program that i hope that you'll support wbai and wpfw all right um well you know i was asked um you know over the last week or so to help formulate help write up a paper that would stand as defense for native to native trade now we're not talking about just a legal defense not not i'm not writing a brief for a court uh you know for a court hearing or something like that but both substantiate the legal defense but also the strategy what we need to do to defend as native people our autonomy our existence and and again when when we talk about native to native trade there may not be anything that can be pointed to that, is, that draws Native people together more than the idea that we trade with each other. I mean, it, it bolsters our unity. It bolsters our sovereignty. But we have challenges. And part of those challenges, and I talked about it a little bit on, on last week's show, when I talked about how the United States, their policies towards Native people are not founded in rule of law. They aren't founded by the U.S. Constitution. They are almost uniquely established through... The very thing that the United States claims that it was opposed to, tyranny, authoritarian rule. Well, that's exactly what the relationship between the United States and Native peoples has always been predicated on, authoritarian rule. And, and it doesn't even come from Congress flexing its muscle with, without, you know, without any cause, I guess. And, and what I talked about last week was this, this notion that we, you know, where we hear, especially the right, talk about, oh, we can't have activist judges. Well, the Supreme Court has been a a functional body of legislators for 200 years. They have created law. Now, you would think that it's only Congress, right? The Senate and the Congress, the the House of Representatives, that's supposed to create law. And that it's the, the courts who are supposed to interpret that law. And it's the executive branch that's supposed to enforce that law. But when it comes to Native people, that's not the case. Look, we are not a part of the U.S. Constitution. We were not, I don't want to say we were excluded. We just weren't a part of it. We were already distinct Native, we are already distinct nations. In the Constitution, they actually cite us specifically and they refer to us as Indians not taxed. And they say we should not be counted for enumeration of taxation or representation. In other words, you can't count Native people to determine how many congressmen there's going to be in a given area. So, I mean, it it couldn't be spelled out more more clearly and in two of the other parts of the constitution the executive clauses which or the treaty clause it says that the president has, shall, shall have the power to to negotiate treaties with foreign nations and with indian tribes so we're we're mentioned specifically in a treaty clause which is could not be more clearly um, defining us as distinct and sovereign nations, and we're set up there, right on par with with foreign foreign nations, in the Commerce Clause. And the Commerce Clause is the clause that some justices over the years have cited was the the basis for their rationale to say Congress intended, or or, or the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, if you will, intended for Congress to have power over Native peoples. But that's not what the Commerce Clause says. The Commerce Clause says Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce in and among several states, interstate commerce with foreign nations and with Indian tribes, not of Indian tribes with Indian tribes. And it never says it even never even hints that that Congress shall have the power to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. But that's exactly what the courts have said. So what I talked about last week is how these courts. They they create this legal dicta. See, I mean, there's There's a ruling that a court makes. Right. But then there's a rationale that they always put up. And that's the the opinions that you hear. And there's a rationale why certain judges will vote against. That's the dissenting opinion and the affirming opinion. And sometimes you will have um, separate assenting or or affirming uh, opinions. But these allow these justices to explain their rationale. The problem with these opinions is sometimes the opinions themselves become the law. Not the ruling, and the and the you know look we're 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 coming at uh, to the to the close of um, uh, Black History Month, and for the life of me, I'll never understand this. And you know, Reggie, you feel free to weigh in on this thing. I have never heard anybody bring up the doctrine of Christian discovery in their discussions about Black History Month. I mean, the foundation for the entire. Slave trade, not just with you know with the Western Hemisphere, of Africa to to Europe. I mean, going in, into all of these regions was predicated on this established legal doctrine that that is drawn from church dogma. It's drawn it's drawn from the papal bulls of the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries, but it's it's the the monarchs of Europe who said, "Okay, we are going to incorporate what we're interpreting from the church." as our legal right to just take stuff, take freedom, take lives, take land from non-Christians. So that's why it's referred to as the the doctrine of Christian discovery. Ironically, the churches have now said, or the church, I should say, the Vatican, the Pope himself, have said, no, we never created the doctrine of Christian discovery. That's a misinterpretation by the Christian monarchs of Europe who did that. We didn't do that. In fact, we reject the notion of the doctrine of Christian discovery. And in fact, they they'll cite other papal bulls that kind of suggested that, but they never repudiate the role, or I take it back, they never rescind the role that they played in creating this interpretation of the of this church dogma that created the doctrine of discovery. And of course, when the church makes this or issues this repudiation, this condemnation, it comes. Years after this church doctrine becomes codified in U.S. law, and it, again, it justifies slavery, it justifies genocide, it justifies a Christian nation taking the power to do what they want—murder, rape, enslave, steal, uh, disappear a people. That's what—that's what the doctrine of Christian discovery does. You know, and, and the crazy part is. Justice John Marshall, and I got, and I, I've mentioned this this line before, but let me let me read this line because it is just so, so classic. I guess um, he talks about he talks about how our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery, but then he goes on to really put a finer point on it, and he says, however extravagant the pretension of converting the discovery of an inhabited country into conquest may appear, if the principle has been asserted in the first instance and afterwards sustained, if a country has been acquired and held under it, if the property of the great mass of the community originates in it, it becomes the law of the land and cannot be questioned. So, so Chief Justice John Marshall in 1823 puts the doctrine of Christian discovery into U.S. law. And it's there. I mean, it, and again, I've said it before. Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited it in two thousand five. The liberal darling of the court cites the doctrine of Christian discovery. She actually left out the word Christian, even though Marshall emphasized that that this right came from them being a Christian people. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, being Jewish and all, leaves the word Christian out. Of the, she says the doctrine of discovery, and she actually she actually makes a um, um, a it takes an attempt at, at defining and um, and uh, basically defining what the doctrine of discovery is. She says that under the doctrine of discovery, fee title to the lands occupied by Indians when the colonists arrived became vested in the sovereign, first the discovering European nation, and later the original states and the United States. So, so again, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Jewish lady, the liberal darling of the court. She cites in footnote number one in a ruling against the Oneida Nation who was merely just reacquiring lost lands that they had a right to sue for title to. She says, no, you can't. You can't just get that land back. Under the doctrine of discovery, fee title to the land occupied by Indians became vested in the sovereign. In other words, we weren't the sovereign. She's talking about them. And she doesn't say how it became vested. She says, no, we just, we just interpreted it that way. And it becomes law that's, that's sustained to this day. Now the doctrine of discovery wasn't passed by Congress. It's not embedded in the US Constitution. So this is an authoritarian power created by the Supreme Court. And it becomes the starting place for a through line that ends especially and at least in the in the lifetime of Justice Chief Chief Justice John Marshall with him creating not only this notion of a of a trust responsibility, and it's a fallacy, and I'll get into that a little bit more, too. This fallacy about, about Congress having a trust responsibility, or the U.S. government in general having a trust responsibility to the native people. So in other words, converting us to wards of the state. But he goes further than that. He actually says that the framers of the um of the Constitution never intended to recognize us as uh, as foreign nations. So ignore the treaty clause. Ignore the fact that we're set on par with foreign nations in both the treaty clause and the commerce clause. Just ignore that. They didn't mean that. They really meant that they were, that they were like wards to their guardians. And then again, again, he goes beyond that and he creates this other thing called the Plenary Powers Doctrine. Now, the Plenary Powers Doctrine is, again, it's a creation of this martial court, the Supreme Court in the 1800s, that basically says Congress has unlimited power, ultimate power over Native peoples, and it it it's not bound by the Constitution, it's not bound by rule of law. In fact, by creating this notion, this plenary powers doctrine, they say we don't need law because every law that's passed by Congress relating to Native people is the rule of law. I mean, and so they they don't they don't rely on any kind of originating documents. They relied on these Supreme court justices creating a power that was never created in the constitution that has no other originating documentation, no other rule of law to to back it up. It's, it's clear unfettered authoritarian rule. And, and here's the crazy part is, and this is the part that, that I find really disheartening is that we as native people, we get advised by legal counsel to, um, to use the plenary powers doctrine, especially when we're trying to defend our, ourselves against the states, so we say, "Oh no, states, you don't have that authority. Only Congress has the authority." Or we cite something, we we cite a right that we that we maintain or we claim, and ultimately we almost have to argue we have that right because Congress never took it away from us. That was the McGirt decision. The McGirt decision. Every time, well, well yeah, uh, Neil Gorsuch wrote this opinion in in the McGirt decision that basically gave. Um, uh, this large swath of Oklahoma back to native people. But in his, in his opinion, he basically says, yeah, it's still native land because Congress hasn't taken it yet. So it, again, it bolsters this notion that Congress can take it. I mean, and, and that's, that's what they insist they, that, the, that Congress has the, the power to do. The court created that. That's how they, they they um they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. They basically said, in you know in a ruling in eight, 1987, that there is no statutory framework established by Congress to regulate Native gaming. So neither the states nor the federal government have that power because Congress never never asserted that power. So what did Congress do? They asserted the power. They created the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that put the states in our gaming. Now the states didn't have a right to be there, but Congress gave it to them. Congress said, "We're going to insist that if Native people want to do legal gaming under this newly established statutory framework, they have to have a compact with the states, a gaming compact." Which essentially gave the states authority to regulate above not just co-regulate, but to have superseding authority over Native the Native people's doing this business on their own lands. So, I mean, let me, because sometimes it sounds like, well, that's such a long time ago. But let me explain, again, this, this federal trust responsibility, and we hear it all the time. I mean, I've heard Native people say, well, we have to, you know, the United States has a trust responsibility to us. So we have to hold them to it. No, you're not understanding what you're saying. First off, what you're saying is that they are our trustees, that we are mere wards of the federal government. That's what Paul Gosar said. I mean, Paul Gosar said that like in you know, I don't know, 2014, and and again in in an Apache case, he said, "Oh, Indians, Native Americans are just wards of the federal government." And of course, Native people got pissed off. But every time we cite this trust responsibility, that's what we're saying. But here's the here's the kicker: it's not really any kind of true trustee ward relationship. Sam Alito, only about 10 years or so ago. He wrote that Congress may style its relationship with the Indians a trust without assuming all the fiduciary duties of a private trust. In other words, yeah, you, we can call it a trust, but we don't have to be held a trust law. I mean, that's what he says. He says creating a trust relationship that is limited or bare, bare, compared to a trust relationship between private parties in common law. So in other words, yeah, we use that language but we don't have any of the same responsibilities that a trustee would normally have to its wards. I mean, he goes on, he says, throughout the history of the Indian trust relationship, we have recognized that the organization and management of the trust is a sovereign function subject to the plenary powers of of Congress, which has plenary authority, which means ultimate authority, just to repeat it again, which they have plenary authority. Again, Sam Alito saying this only about a decade ago, Plenary plenary authority to divest the tribes of any attributes of sovereignty. Plenary authority to legislate for the Indian tribes in all matters, including their form of government. Plenary authority over Indians and all of their tribal relations, and full power to legislate concerning their property. So they created this out of thin air, and 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 it stands. So much in stark violation of the of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which I have a trusty copy with me almost at all times. And it creates this fallacy. Again, starting with the doctrine of Christian discovery, reducing us to wards of the state, and then ultimately claiming that Congress has this this bold authority. Ironically, one of the sitting judges says, Yeah, I don't see that. I don't see where Congress has that plenary powers. And of all people. It's a guy who's bought and sold more than any other justice. It's Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas has cited on several opinions that he's written this notion that he doesn't see constitutionally where Congress can claim to have that pl- those plenary powers. And in fact, Congress didn't claim them. The court gave it to them. They insisted that they have it. And and again, our legal counsel, whether it's legal counsel for for our nations, you know, or or our organizations, or even for the private sector, n- the native business person in, in in the private sector, they're advised by these th- these lawyers. You got to use plenary powers. That's your only defense. Yeah, but that's not right. They don't have that power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know, we know they don't really have it. But this is how the game is played. So what do we do? We play the game. We keep yielding and conceding to this notion that congress has this power when there's no originating documents giving it to them so when i'm asked to create a strategy for defending our sovereignty defending this native to native trade i said we got to we got to attack those those immoral defined again by uh, you know what how is it said let's say in here in the um in the the declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples I'll read it here. talks about these, these racist doctrines, right? And it says, well, let me find it here. i already got a copy of it right here handy. It says, affirming further that all doctrines, policies, and practices based on or advocating superiority of peoples or individuals on the basis of national origin or racial, religious, and ethnic and cultural differences are racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable, and socially unjust. Now, I guess it's fine for the international community to say it in a document that has no bite and no enforcement powers. Because the bottom line is, the United States has has committed genocide against Native people, and really continues to do so. I mean, the, the, the mere... The fact that they don't recognize our sovereignty is still them perpetuating this notion that they have somehow conquered us under this extravagant pretension of John Marshall's or or over this plenary powers doctrine. So as far as the United States is concerned, yeah, some bad things happened. Yeah, you know, the same the same thing about slavery. Yeah, that slavery was a bad thing. But you know what? It was legal. Because they weren't bound by anything, again, the doctrine of Christian discovery, even before it became codified law, became the pathway to, to, to steal human beings and subject them to slavery, to steal land from Native people, to, to exterminate Native people, so they could do all this stuff legally. Now, was it wrong? Of course it was wrong. Slavery was always wrong. Rape was always wrong. Murder and, and ma- massacres, they were always wrong. They may not have been illegal because you are citing when it's convenient that you're not bound by rule of law. You're not bound by morality. You're not bound by ethics. I mean, Thomas Jefferson not only raped one of his slaves and bore children with, with her. I don't, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say it raped a woman who he had enslaved. And ironically, for those of you who don't know this, Sally Hemings was his sister-in-law. Yeah, let me say it again. Sally Hemings was his wife's half-sister. Why? How? Because Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law also raped an enslaved woman, a woman he had enslaved. So not only does he have... (laughs) Does he uh, uh, produce a, a daughter that Thomas Jefferson would marry? He produces a daughter that's half black, still enslaved, and apparently Jefferson must have got that with the got received her with the dowry or something like that. So two generations of white men, and they're not even really related. It's not father and son. It's 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 father in law, son in law. Do the same thing, the same crime. And we're going to sit there and pretend. Oh well, yeah, but you have to consider the times. No, it was wrong then. It was wrong to. It was wrong to, to, to rape somebody who was in bondage to you. Not to mention, I don't know how this relates to cheating on your wife and that kind of thing. But it was wrong then, and you know what? Everything we're seeing now—that native people are still fighting, even when we feel almost compelled or forced to use some of these legal doctrines as as a means to slip through a loophole i say cut the loopholes out stop doing that stop claiming that we are wards of the state stop stop trying to utilize this plenary powers of of congress why because it's a lie i mean sam alito said it yeah we we use this trust responsibility to assert the power to eliminate their sovereignty. And if you don't believe that by itself, consider the Cabell suit. In case you've never heard of Eloise Cabell, Eloise Cabell sued the Department of Interior, BIA and the whole entire Department of Interior, essentially the whole executive branch of the the federal government, for the misappropriation and theft, mismanagement of what, in all likelihood, was $100 billion worth of native assets. The records were lost. They burned them. They, they hid them. They destroyed them. They, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs couldn't even tell a native person which oil lease was theirs, which grazing lease was theirs, what property deeds were theirs. So not only did they mismanage the money and the revenue, they mismanaged all of the data associated with this stuff. During the Bush administration, George W was actually floating the idea of trying to settle this thing with four, uh, with a 40, a $40 billion settlement. People thought he was nuts. When Obama became the president, he did settle it. A $4 billion settlement. 10 cents on the dollar from what Bush was suggesting and, and even, even more insane than that o- over what the true number probably was. And out of that $4 billion that that the Obama-Biden administration settled with Eloise Cobell in this class action suit? A big portion of it went to white people. Well, why would white people get it? Because they were going to pay the white people for illegally occupying native lands. So they weren't even going to be harmed by the fact that they made an illegal purchase, perhaps, or made an illegal claim on native lands. No, oh, we're, we're, we're going to make you whole. We're going we're to use some of the settlement, settlement money to pay you off. Yeah, that's the U.S. trust responsibility. It was a sham. It was always a sham. They used it. It was this thinly veiled language that, that even convinced Native people, well, yeah, that trust responsibility, it, it means they, they have our back. They have an obligation to us. Look, there's no question. The federal government has obligations. There's a debt to be paid. And I'm not just talking about reparations. I mean for, for things that were taken, not just lives. I mean, we talk about truth and reconciliation. Yeah, on the Canadian side, the residential schools, they were sending out checks to people. And they thought, well, yeah, we'll make it right that way. I'm sorry. You can't just send checks out. Yeah, you do that all the time. So when I get asked to do this, I've got to attack these so-called legal doctrines that now even the church pulls the rug out from me. The one that, that is, and all three of them essentially have their foundation on the first one, the doctrine of Christian discovery. And the church says, no, no, we didn't we, we didn't do that. Yeah, you guys did that because of your greed and your avarice. You just you just used the church. Look, I'm not buying it either. So I'm not trying to you know, let the let the church off the hook. There's no question the, the church was was culpable and have enriched themselves to the tunes of billions of dollars over the, the last five centuries. But it, it, there's, a, there's a certain humor, I guess, or absurdity to the idea that even what the, even the church, the Vatican, that these monarchs, these Christian monarchs of Europe and their offspring like the United States and Australia, New Zealand, yeah, Canada, all the ones who voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, by the way, there's an irony that their reliance on the church and these legal principles drawn out of the church, they don't even have that to rely on. But they do have it codified in the law. And here's the other thing that I want to say, and this, and this has to be brought up, because the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited it in 2005 against the Oneidas, there's plenty of contradiction. Look, when, when John Marshall incorporates and, and, and codifies the doctrine of discovery into U.S. law. He had to ignore all of the clear language that was already in, in place in certain treaties, like the Canadego Treaty, where the United States said, now the United States acknowledges that the land is yours. And we will never claim the same, nor will we disturb you in the free use and enjoyment of that land. I mean, that's 7094. So, and that and that was written, the Kennedy Treaty included the Oneidas. Ruth Bader Ginsburg ignored that completely when she cited that in the Oneida case. And look, there are other legal doctrines that get that have gotten created along the way that rely on these things. And we have to be prepared to challenge it. Look, I only know of one instance, and maybe there's others, but I only know of one instance where a nation made these arguments. And that was in a case in Washington State where there was a fuel distributor, a native fuel company that was distributing to to stations, it uh, was Yakima, and the state of Washington was trying to uh, assert penalties and fines against them, and so it was the it was called Cougar Den, that was the name of the the company, so Washington State versus Cougar Den, and the Yakima submitted a an Amicus brief as the nation, that essentially this Cougar Den was operating under their license, and said, wait a second, you you've got this whole thing built up on the Doctrine of Discovery. So they submitted two parts to their argument. One was an attack on the Doctrine of Discovery and and some of the other things that came with it. And then the other was an argument that the state was violating the Yakima Treaty of 1855. The court totally ignored, totally ignored the first half of the Amiga Brief. Never addressed any of the, the, the arguments made by the Yakima Nation uh, against the Doctrine of Discovery. They completely ignored it. Didn't, didn't even offer an opinion but they ruled in favor of Cougar Den because of the treaty argument put forth by the Yakima Nation. But you see, even though they didn't acknowledge it, by presenting that argument, they essentially took away, I mean, how was, how was the court going to come back and then cite anything in terms of you know plenary powers or any of this other stuff when when the, the argument was already taken away with the, the first half of that brief? So it was effective, even though there's no language that has the, the courts address it. But we need to do this, and it doesn't require a nation to do it, but we have to have a strategy. So when I'm asked about how do we defend native-to-native trade, well, we've got to wrap our heads around the unlawful, legally invalid legal principles that the United States has put in place through its Supreme Court to give Congress this ultimate authority. Because they don't have it. It's not true. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lie. And and the fact that that we won't press this issue, and and again, I I, I go back. Here we are again, last week of uh, Black History Month, and I haven't heard one black scholar or leader even mention the doctrine of Christian discovery and how that impacted. I mean, because look, the first papal bulls had nothing to do with the Western Hemisphere. It had to do with Portugal grabbing uh, grabbing human beings out of Western Africa to enslave them in Europe. I mean, that's where the slave trade started. I mean, the Europeans may have outgrown slavery before the, before the Western Hemisphere did, before the United States in particular did. But that's where it started. And it was all based on this superiority. And, and look, we, we call it white supremacy now, but it was white Christian supremacy. And it was bolstered by the Catholic Church, by the Vatican, by the popes. And you got to remember, when this thing starts, there were no other churches. There was only the Catholic Church. This was before the separation of the Anglican Church or any others. And they would continue to operate under the same principles of the of this doctrine of Christian discovery. And the United States may not be a Catholic nation, and they claim not to be a Christian nation, but they sure as hell act like it. How many presidents have there ever been in the United States that didn't that didn't have to assert their Christian beliefs? Name me one that hasn't. They all did, all of them did, including including Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah, I, and I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian, but you know he he had to talk about his his Christian bona fides. So did Abe Lincoln. They said he was a, he was kind of the the non-Christian or Thomas Jefferson. No, they all used it. They all used it. So that's what I wanted to bring up today because I'm I, I have crafted this paper and I do have the the. It's still a work in progress, but I have that document, and it's about an eight or nine-page uh, paper that I wrote. And if you look for it on Facebook, if you go to my Let's Talk Native page, I've got to post it as a document. Uh, you know, Feel free to take a look at it. And look, and I'm putting this thing out there to promote people to begin this argument. And the argument isn't, I'm not talking about take this into court. I'm saying use it before you get there. So, that's that's some of my thoughts. Hey Reggie, are you available if we wanted to try to do a couple of calls before the end of the program?
1: I am here and available, John. So, <laughs> you you want to do listener phone calls?
0: Yeah, we can do do a couple. I mean, I I can rattle on for a, for another 20 minutes, but I, I, I do that every week. Of course you can.
1: <laughs> of course you can. Of course you can. So, since you want participation with the listening audience, might as well give the number. So All right. for those listeners out there who are clamoring to talk with John Kane, you can do so by calling this number, 212-209-295. Oh, my goodness. 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Let's see if we can get anyone out there. But at the meantime, um... Uh, continue to uh yeah no it, well yeah. The,
0: the number that you almost said which is the pledge line for for wbi yes. <laughs> feel free to call that number too 212 yeah, 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 yeah. of course, of course. Um, if you are in w- listening in washington dc or anywhere and you want to make a, a contribution to wpfw their number is 202-588-9739 those are the the pledge lines but the but the studio line is 212 212- 209-2877. And of course, look, I present, as I do every week, a topic to talk about. And some of it may seem a little redundant. And and I and I make no apologies for that. These issues must be driven home. And there's there's such a lack of information and, and disinformation out there. I mean, and we're represented as a lie in the United States. You know, and you know, I get asked all the time, you know, why do you why are you so obsessed over the uh, the mascot issue? And and I have to say, look, I'm not obsessed over it, but it's it's stupid. It is just plain ignorance on the part of Americans that somehow playing Indian as a part of your sports fanaticism has become such an. Because uh, I always get hit with, oh, yeah, you're all too you're all too sensitive. Well, you know, who are the ones who are crying the most, Reggie are the ones who are saying, oh, my school had to change its mascot. We can't mm-hmm. we, we can't be Indians mm-hmm. anymore. We can't be warriors anymore. We can't be Redskins anymore. We can't put red face on and go to school that way anymore. We can't do all of these, the, these ridiculous things. Look, we all can acknowledge today that blackface is wrong. I uh-huh. mean, I know there's probably some white folks that are somewhat begrudging about having to make that acknowledgement. I, I don't think they all agree, but... Nobody's going to defend blackface, but they'll still defend redface in a football game or wearing headdresses or, or, or some sort of, you know, party city, you know, um, costume or, uh, to, to wear or something like that, like, you know, Pocahontas costumes or something like that, you know?
1: And, and you know what's worse as well, John, is that then they have to force themselves to expose their white fragility.
0: Well, and that's, that's exactly what comes to bear. The second you hear somebody c- c- crying about this and they're claiming that to be anti-woke and to be anti-cancel you know, culture and, uh-huh. and to, they're standing up against the liberal elite while they whine about this thing. I mean, look, you're 47 years old. If you graduated, it was probably 30 years ago. I mean, g- give it a freaking break. I mean, you don't need to be playing Indian at 50, 60, 70 years old. Even if you're native. You should I mean, unless you're going to some sort of ceremony, you got no reason to show up at a ball game dressed in regalia. I mean,
1: yeah, I got to be careful, John, because I, I heard people in the past said that whenever we laugh, you know, that makes other people scared. So uh, I got to I got to make sure that I, I show no emotion at this point. And um, no, no, and, Reg,
0: Reg, see, this is this is and this has been widely um, uh, understood. It's when we What's stop that? laughing is when they should be scared.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> as long as we're still laughing at you, it means that we're not that angry yet. We're we okay. just thinking. Think oh,
1: oh, oh! That's what. Oh, that's yeah. right. Because if you're not saying anything,
0: we're quiet. That means we're plotting. Yeah, you know because you know we're you plotting. Know, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I got it. I so got, it. As, I as got long, it. as long as we're laughing, you, you're, you're probably safe. <laughs> but know that our laughing at you, and we are laughing at you is mm-hmm. because your behavior is absurd and and you know it is because you know you can't do it to any other people i mean and, and that's that's where this thing becomes so absurd i mean and and look it isn't just the idea of wearing red face it's the idea that you're representing native people as relics of the past, like we aren't here anymore and I heard of a study that was done that a full twenty five percent of Americans think that all native people are extinct mm-hmm. that their genocide was Complete yep. and effective, and that we no longer exist. And why is it? Because why do we, we exist anymore? Because they don't see us running around in red face. They don't see us running around with with bonnets on our heads. And you know, Man, so wh- well. Wh- clearly, they strike. can't be native people.
1: Uh-uh. No, so, of course not.
0: So no, again, not. let me get the number out again. I know. I, I Look, I, I know people have kind of grown used to just listening to me for an hour, not participating. But I'm always hopeful that somebody's got some. Well, we got of some wisdom. listeners. All right. We let got me, some listeners. I'll throw the number out one more time. Yeah. 212 209 2877. That's the studio line to call in. Um, do we, so is there a caller ready to go?
1: Uh, we got a caller we got a couple of callers ready to go. All
0: right, let, let's go. And look, we're not bound to talk about just what I presented here, but but uh, caller, course. give me your name and where you're calling from. Not your not your full name, just your first name, just to be polite. Give me your first name and where you're calling from. Go ahead, caller. That is you, Hi. caller. Yep, right
2: now. Okay, this is caller number one. This is Marianne, and I am living in Manhattan on West Seventy Third Street. And I just want to say I caught your show once before when you were going on about tribal names on on games and sports. Mm-hmm. And I was with you one hundred percent. And my second question is well, the second is this is I'm catching you today. My head is spinning. You are so on top of things. Now, I come from Pittsburgh originally, a small little place called Wilmerding, and had no idea. I know that my, in about 1850, my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was Seneca. Mm-hmm. You can still see it in our family line. I've got it, and I'm, I'm thrilled and proud of it. But I did not even know that my little town was so close to such a huge community until I went into the Dollar General five years ago and I saw the herbs, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, just the next town over, we have a big, big group still remaining, Seneca, Iroquois, but I just want to know why I haven't been able to find your show before, and I've got to be so grateful to you, I'm going to be contributing, believe me, I'm going to keep contributing so that you guys stay on the air, and I'm not always available at this time, but I know where to find you now on the, on the web. Thank you so much, please keep the truth coming out. That's
0: all I can say to you. Thank you. Well, I want to, I, I thank you so much for that. Yeah, I'm I'm actually broadcasting from Seneca territory. I I live on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. Once COVID struck, we we figured that how Reggie was a big part of helping us work out this remote broadcasting thing and so uh, so I do it from my own studio here on the on on Seneca territory. And and look, the area just South of the state line, uh, much of that that Pennsylvania uh, territory was uh, was a part of the Seneca Nation territory, and and actually the, the Seneca still own some land that are on the Pennsylvania side. There's just not a like a community that's there. It's mostly on on this side of the state line, so to speak. But um, look, I thank you for that. Look, I I've been doing this for a long time, and you know sometimes it's a little, little inexplicable to, to understand how more people haven't heard any of this, I mean, look, I, you, you might hear something, you say, no, I'm not going to ever listen to that again. So, but the people who, who hear it for the first time after doing this for over a decade, um, yeah, I, I'm sometimes a little surprised, but we do put this show up as a podcast and you can find it by going to resistance radio with John Kane podcast. And, uh, and it'll show up. I, I post it every week. We do stream it online uh, with, uh, with Facebook. And of course, both WPFW and WBAI, stream the show as well as broadcast the show. So you can find it in their archives as well. Um, so, but no, I, I appreciate that. And, uh, and I appreciate all all of your sentiment. And uh, well, and look, there's no question that our population was greatly diminished. And part of that diminishment had to do with essentially um, not just through assimilation and, and, and murder, but... The amount of watering down of our, and I don't mean, well, I hate to say it in terms of bloodline, but but cultural lines, and so that's why there's a well, there's many people uh, non people who are predominantly non-native that they do have native uh, blood in them, and and I know that oftentimes creates this this level of indifference, and you know how much should they own it, how much should they feel that they are entitled to represent themselves as Native people as opposed to just be proud of the fact that they have some of that, and that becomes a bit of a, a bit of a challenge, so. Uh, let's, we'll go to another caller again, uh, Marianne, thank you very much for that call. I sure do appreciate it. Um, uh, Reggie, we got another one lined up. Yes, we do. All right. Caller you're up next. You are the second caller. So give me your first name and where you're calling from.
3: Hi, John. I'm John also, and I'm calling from the Northwest Bronx. And, uh, I basically am, am a fan of your show. Uh, your show is the type of show that I contribute to, to BAI for, And your perspective on the hypocrisy uh, uh, brought upon your people is so unique. And it's a different look at these figures we're familiar with from such a different angle. And I appreciate it very much, especially the type of scrutiny that you place on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Letitia James, because they got one kind of image going on down here. And apparently they got a whole different thing going on up there. Kathy Hochul so as well. Thanks a lot for your broadcast Oh, yeah. I'm no fan of her. She is horrendous. <laughs> I can't stand her at all. I'm sick of her. She got uh, shoehorned in there by a crook, Cuomo. And uh, that his that his brother even has another job is just ridiculous also. Yeah. Who would tune that junk in?
0: So <laughs> well, thanks a I- lot, John. I get a
3: kick out of your broadcast, and you keep doing it.
0: Well, I thank you for, uh, again, uh, another John. <laughs> I thank I thank you for that. And and look, I know that oftentimes I'm saying something that's never been heard before, and, and and it's not because people disagree with me. It's it's oftentimes because there's almost this level of acceptance to certain things that, and like I said, when I talk about legal counsel telling us, "Well, you gotta you gotta play the game as it's uh, you know the, you gotta play the hand that's dealt," and I'm saying no. <laughs> i not I don't accept the hand that's dealt. I if I'm going to accept the hand that's dealt, I want to accept the hand that was dealt before white people showed up here. And 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 all I'm saying is, don't believe that you have this this shining example of democracy and rule of law when in fact you don't. And and this is what we have to hold out. And I'm not saying that every person that I've you know I've ever criticized, whether it's Abraham Lincoln for the mass execution of of uh, at, at makato minnesota or or whether it's thomas jefferson with some of his you know, i don't even, i'm not calling indiscretions i mean care, pure character and legal flaws or george washington or any of them i'm not saying they didn't do anything good i don't you know, but that's not what impacts my life what impacts my life are the things that they did that were not good and were not ethical were not moral and frankly not legal Look, if we got another call, we'll do, we can fit one more in if there's one on the line. Oh, there.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. We got another caller.
0: All right. Let's go to – caller, you're the you, you're probably the last one. So uh, by all means, uh, give me your first name and where you're calling from and l- what's on your mind. Okay. This is T.K. All right. I'm
4: calling from Rockland County.
0: All right. Thanks. And what's
4: on my mind, sir, and I respect you greatly, I need you to talk more about the missing and murdered indigenous women until it's resolved, I needed to stay in the forefront because it's also such with black women. And it seems that black women and indigenous women are the most unprotected, unrespected, uncared for women in the world. I, agree. So I want something to be done and I want you to make it a priority, sir, with your platform.
0: Well, Can it's it's, it's, it's ironic. It's ironic that you brought it up because I'm actually wearing a shirt today. If if you if you happen to look at it on Facebook, I'm wearing my missing and murdered indigenous women's shirt. A shi- a he shirt is. That, I'm looking
1: at it right now.
0: <laughs> a shirt that I designed, by well, the way. So, I mean, well, that's great because it's on my mind a lot. Okay. A and, lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and you know the thing is, it isn't just what people are characterizing as missing and murdered Indigenous women or Black women for that matter. I, you know, I think even listening to some of the previous show about the dangers that women uh, in general um, uh, encounter with with medical care, the the uh, the death rate of the infant mortality and and maternal death rate at childbirth is highest amongst Black women and Native women. I mean, and there's no explanation for it other than racism, because it's not like we have a predisposition. Exactly. Is not that we don't know how to give birth, you know, or that our women are somehow weak. Part of it has to do with the overt racism that exists. And I and I give you this example. Reggie knows this. My my grandson, who was just in the hospital actually a week ago with RSV, he was born in my living room, not because we wanted to have him born in my living room. My daughter had gone to the hospital, one of those Catholic hospitals. Because she was in labor and they told her to go home. She wasn't ready yet. She didn't make it through the night. So my grandson was born on my couch. Now, I got to tell you, I can't prove it, but something tells me if she was a white girl, they weren't going to tell her to go home. They weren't going to say, well, I'll go back no. to the reservation. We'll see you in a couple of days. I agree with you, sir. And it's, look, let's, let's,
4: let's cut to the chase. If you don't like somebody and you want to get rid of them, well, you can get rid of them on every level. And that's what they're doing. They get rid of us by giving us bad food, putting us in bad environments, making sure, you know, if you do step out of line and the police have any kind of interactions with you, they know that they can get away with murdering you. And in between that, hey, when it's time to give birth, well, my hand slipped. Well, I wasn't looking. Well, the cord got wrapped around the baby's neck. Well, we gave the wrong medication. Or we well, didn't really believe you this, that you were we hurting that.
0: that badly. Or we didn't believe you when you said there this. You go. We Ask didn't be- Serena
4: Williams. Ask yeah. Serena Williams. At, ex- so, exactly. Yes, exactly. sir. They're murdering us on every level, on every front, in every way. And we need to get together and have the unity that we will need
0: to survive the onslaught if 45 returns. Well, and, you know, and I, I got to tell you, that's part of the reason I brought up the doctrine of Christian discovery earlier, because there isn't enough unity between black people and native people to expose just how egregious that legal doctrine was and how it impacted everything from slavery to genocide. So I, I'm with you. I, TK, I'm, I'm glad you called in. I thank you for that. And and like I said, I, I'm not wearing this shirt by accident. Uh, I made a decision to wear it, even though it wasn't the topic that I was talking about today. But I will do more. Um, and I feel strongly, like I said, I, 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 have a personal experience with, with what my daughter went through delivering my youngest, my 10th grandchild. So, uh, so no, I, 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 am with you on this one. So, uh, we will, we will do more Reggie. I know that just pretty much wraps it up. Um, so, um, I want to thank you again, Reggie. It's always, it's always great to interact with you, even if it's a little bit. And of course you, you are, you are absolutely necessary Likewise. for me to do, to do, uh, do these phone <laughs> calls, but, uh, I,
1: I, I'm, I'm, glad you think like that. So I appreciate
0: that. Yeah, no, you're, I, I consider you an active part of the show on, on more than just a few occasions. So, uh, so I appreciate <laughs> okay. that, but, uh, great, hey, by the way, great. to that question I asked earlier, have you heard anybody mention Doctor of Discovery other than me? You know, I've gotten
1: to the point, um, John, to talk to other producers here in this radio station to even bring that subject matter up, okay? And um, with the exception of one person that actually did something in regards to um, who happens to be, uh, I could call his name, Ron Daniels. Ron Daniels is maybe the only other person that I've heard talk about the doctrine of discovery.
0: You know, and it and, and relates to the Gaza of- stuff. It relates to all of this stuff. So right. it's amazing to me that we can't have more of a discussion. And, and look, to any of the other producers on WBAI or WPFW, if you want to engage me in this conversation on your program, feel free to reach out to me. Reggie, I want to thank you again for, uh, for what I think was another good show. And I thank the callers, uh, the three who called in. Uh, great stuff. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I, we'll, we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. This is John Kane. And this is Resistance Radio, Yahweh.